Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Hello, everyone. I'm Dorothy Koshu, host of the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'm happy to welcome my guests today, Ryan Work, Vice President, Government Relations, and Chris Condalucci, Washington Counsel for the Self-Insurance Institute of America. And they will be sharing with us their insights and analysis on the new rules regarding the independent dispute resolution process laid out in the No Surprises Act Regulations Part 2. Thanks, gentlemen, for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, this is a very important topic. Uh, the No Surprises Act pretty much changes the way claims are paid and how providers can bill for certain services beginning January 1st, 2022, and that's just around the corner. This is actually my third podcast this season so far on the No Surprises Act, so that pretty much sums up how important this is, at least to, to my audience and to most of us that are in this industry. Ryan and Chris, you did a really informative webinar for SIA members, Self-Insurance Institute of America members, on this topic recently, and I was really impressed with what a great job you did on such a complex topic. It was the most comprehensive, best explained webinar that I've attended on this uh, topic to date. You guys were so great that I wanted to invite you to be my guest on this podcast today. So thank you very, very much for being here. Yeah, it's definitely a complicated topic. And uh, especially, I think, with implementation coming in January, there's lots of, I think, questions and ideas. And, and, uh, and we're certainly waiting for more out of the federal agencies. Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to basically start with you on something, Ryan, because I know you have an opinion on this based on the webinar that I attended. So the No Surprises Act, when those rules were released, in your opinion, what was the response of the provider community and how did they react to all of this? Well, I, I think the short answer is it's been an interesting ride because even when Chris and I were busy advocating for this issue in Congress, as they were writing the No Surprises Act, it was really, I think, a battle between the insurer and employer communities versus the hospitals and providers. And, and the, the interesting thing is when arbitration was brought up and passed, I think it was one of our biggest concerns. Because if you look at the states that do arbitration on surprise billing, it's, it's provider-friendly across the board from Texas to, to New York. And I think we thought the legislation was provider-friendly in the first place. And that's why it was so interesting from our perspective that the arbitration rule ended up being um, friendly to, I think, the self-insured employer community. And as you mentioned in your question, Dorothy, the hospitals and providers, I think, I think the, best, the best word I can describe it was enraged by, by the arbitration rule. And I think one of the first quotes from the, one of the hospital associations was that this was a gift to the insurers on a silver platter, which I, I disagree with. But I think after everything else that came out in surprise billing and the politics of it, and honestly, tens of millions of dollars spent by the by the hospitals against it in the first place, that it was a that the policy that came out in this IFR was was needed and, and I think well deserved. Yes, I agree with you on that. Well, we'll see how this uh, all plays out as this rolls out in January. So now that we know where the providers are on this, let's talk about how this is going to affect health plans, particularly self-funded health plans, as they have basically more skin in the game, so to speak, than a fully insured carrier would. Let's back up for just a moment and remind people this act does not apply to all claims and all balanced bills. What types of balanced billing is being regulated by the No Surprises Act? 
Ryan, if you'd like, I could go ahead and take that. First of all, I'll say, Dorothy, A, again, thanks for having us, and B, thanks for your kind words uh, about the webinar. But to your question here, the No Surprises Act really applies in two instances. The first instance is if there is emergency care that is furnished by an out-of-network provider, the federal No Surprises Act protections will apply, period. The second instance in which these federal protections will apply is the furnishing of non-emergency services. However, there's some specific caveats to that. The non-emergency services have to be furnished by an out-of-network provider at an in-network facility. So the last thing I'll say on this, especially in the self-insured context, we have unique plan designs in the self-insured space. Some plans with no networks. Applying these no network plans to the two instances that I just described to try to put this in perspective, emergency care will always be subject to the No Surprises Act protections because if you don't have a network, that service will always be out of network. When it comes to the non-emergency services, if you do not have an in-network facility that the plan has a contractual relationship with, an argument can be made, and Ryan and I have discussed this, that the No Surprises Act protections would not apply in that case. So if you have a contractual relationship with a facility, thereby making it an in-network facility, and there is an out-of-network provider furnishing services at that in-network facility, again, that is when the No Surprises Act protections apply. And I'll add a third one just really quickly, because we get a lot of, I, I know over the past couple of years, we've gotten a lot of concerns from plans from a side perspective, and it has to do with air ambulance costs. And so air ambulance uh, is included, not ground ambulance, which is a totally separate conversation, but I wouldn't be surprised if ground ambulance gets folded in in the next couple of years. So just a, an addition there. That was a good addition, right? Yes, thank you for that. One of the most important items in the No Surprises Act Regulations Part 2 was the creation of a federal portal or website where all of the provider plan disputes are going to be entered into. If you were a teacher, what grade would you give CMS on the website as far as the ease of use, the completeness, and the ability to do what it's supposed to do? Will it help in the IDR process? And are there items you feel CMS missed in the portal creation? Well, from a from a teacher perspective, I think it's like mid semester right now. <laughs> so I would I would give it a, a if I had to give it a B to be specific or a grade, I would give it a B. Um, it's it's not fully developed. I, I think the most important thing is that the federal departments, and I'll give them an A plus on this, have really uh, for the federal government moved very quickly on a federal portal. And make no mistake, this portal is going to be the end all be all of everything that plans uh, and the participants will have to submit when it comes to surprise billing data. So all that being said, my short answer is, look, we're, we're a couple months out from implementation from this hitting the ground. The fact that the federal agencies have moved quickly to implement this is pretty amazing to me. And while all the bells and whistles aren't necessarily there, they will be. And, and if, if you have not visited the portal on the CMS website, I urge everybody to bookmark that and to constantly visit it as they populate that with, with the tools and be, you know, start kind of customizing yourself to those. So come January 1, 
uh, folks will know how to use it. Yeah. The one thing I guess we don't want people to do is be scrambling at the last second and trying to figure out what it's all about. Uh, yes, do some advanced homework. That would probably be the best advice. Thank you for that. Do you think that the creation of the federal portal will help streamline the process for the independent dispute resolution process? Yeah, and I'll jump in, Ryan. I, I mean, I agree with everything that Ryan said. I don't necessarily have a grade per se because I agree we're, we're in the early innings of the uh, implementation here and the establishment of these tools, which here is the federal portal. Uh, but to your question, Dorothy, I really do think that it will help in streamlining the arbitration process. That's the purpose of, of the federal portal. That's why the federal government established it. And uh, I do think that it'll be very helpful. And, and to Ryan's point, just piling on, I do think that plans, service providers, everybody who's involved in this process um, should indeed bookmark that page because it will be a living, breathing uh, entity or a living, breathing tool because there will be uh, important information relating to the CEDRAs, uh, to all of the information that it goes to, time periods, et cetera. Uh, so it's advisable to keep looking back at that federal portal for information purposes. Another new acronym was created, at least that's what you two referred to it as, and I've been doing the same thing since your webinar, by the way, for the No Surprises Act, the CEDRA. Can you tell us exactly what that is and what their role is? Yeah, so, you know, when we came up with that, it was the fall, so CIDR, CEDRA, it's, it's a great acronym, but um, but it, it really is to help solve a tongue twister, and that is the Certified Independent Dispute Resolution Entity otherwise known as CEDRA, otherwise known as the arbiter. So when we refer to CEDRA, you know, really it's just a, it's just a short name for what that independent dispute resolution entity is, is going to be throughout this arbitration process. Yes, and I have to tell you, when I listened to your webinar, when I watched your webinar, I was very happy that you came up with a shortcut for that because I was wondering how we were going to, uh, you know, refer to that going forward. Well, we we live in D.C., so we love uh, we love us some acronyms. Yes, yes, of course. Well, before we get into some of the details on this, I suppose we should remind people what the QPA is. Can you define that again for us? Yeah, I'll take this really quick before Chris can go into some of the other QPA details. But at the end of the day, the qualifying payment amount is really the in-network median rate of a specific service or code by by geographic area. And that's important not only for some of the perhaps initial payment uh, amount discussions and the open negotiation rate, but it's very important in arbitration because it's the primary factor that the arbiter has or the CEDRA has to consider. And furthermore, when that QPA amount is given as part of this process, the, the CEDRA basically has to assume that that amount is, is the correct amount. So that, that, is, that being a primary factor is important for plans. It's also the biggest uh, point of opposition to providers who don't want that to be a primary factor. Rather, the providers want that to be a number of other factors. We and a lot of other folks in the employer community believe that that that's that the QPA amount being the primary factor is important for not only to keep the, the cost of care down, but we also believe that was legislative intent for a lot of savings that the Congressional Budget Office and others had had presumed when they passed the No Surprises Act. Thank you for that. Uh, the 
CEDRA, as you call it, <laughs> will consider other factors that will warrant at times a higher payment amount to providers, and that includes things like their level of training, market share, and certain other things. I'm going to let you guys talk about that a little bit more. But they made it clear in the rules that they're not going to give equal weight to both the QPA and the additional factors. What are your thoughts on this? Is it good or is it bad for self-funded plans? Yeah, and I'll jump in on this, Ryan, is, and Dorothy is, to us, uh, this aspect of this September 30th IFR, as we refer to it, this part two, implementing the rules, is the biggest, most important aspect of the rule and the biggest, most important aspect of the overall implementation of the no surprises federal, federal protections. And what we mean by that is, as Ryan indicated, the qualifying payment amount is the in-network median rate for the medical item service furnished in a geographic area. And that's super important for two reasons, because one, that median network rate is used to determine how much the patient pays for these out-of-network services, but it also is used as the primary factor that the arbiter must look to in determining a final payment amount during the IDR process. And to the point that you raised, there are these additional criteria that the statute indicated that the arbiter, the CEDRA, can also take into account in addition to this in-network median rate. But the part two rule specifically said, look, CEDRA, you must look to the in-network median rate as the primary factor and assume that that is the final payment amount because in the federal department's view, the median in-network rate is a representation of a reasonable market-driven value. But again, there are these additional criteria that an arbiter is allowed to look to. And that additional criteria is some that you just enumerated. Teaching status, whether the plan is, uh, has gone in-network or not, the patient acuity and complexity of the service, and there are some other factors that are taken into account. And if a provider can provide credible information to the CEDRA, to the arbiter, that indicates that this median in-network rate is not an appropriate value for the service that was furnished, then the part two rules allow the CEDRA to look to a value that is higher than the median in-network rate, which would be an offer that's closer or to actually the offer that the provider has submitted for payment for this particular service. And I know that's a lot of information, so thank you for your clarification on some of this. How often do you think these additional factors might you know, come up when they're determining a final rate? I think a lot. I think providers, um, and hearkening back to Ryan's point, that the providers are not happy with this particular rule. The providers are unhappy because they feel that the median in-network rate is much lower than the payment amount that they feel that they deserve. And if the part two reg, the part two rule here says that the anchor is the median in-network rate and the only way a provider can receive a higher payment amount is if they can provide information tied to these additional factors that will convince the CEDRA, the arbiter, that the qualifying payment is way off and that the provider deserves a higher amount. That's a very high bar for the provider to meet. 
And, and I'll say one one other thing, Dorothy, and that is that the QPA and the final the final payment amount submitted, for instance, by a self-insured plan do not need to be the same amount. And, and, and I'll further say this, that the, this final amount that potentially a self-insured plan is submitting as part of the arbitration process, it behooves the plan to consider these other factors that Chris mentioned and put those into the payment amounts. So they are, they're close to that and the arbiter sees that and understands that they were included. And, and so that's one of the, I'll say the differences between the QPA and kind of a, a payment, a final payment amount that's submitted by the plan during that arbitration process. Yeah, and I would guess that the providers are going to do everything they can to make sure that their payments are as high as they can be, as you said. So I think that this will happen quite a bit as well, as as you said. Uh, so part two also indicates that they may not consider usual and customary rates, bill charges, or the reimbursement rate under public payers like Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, TRICARE, or veterans benefits. How does this affect the QPA amounts initially offered by plans such as reference-based pricing plans, which are based on a percentage above Medicare, such as, for example, 150% of Medicare? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And one that Chris and I have had probably hours of conversation on with between us and our members since the very beginning of this, because, uh, you know, if you're not in a traditional plan design, this gets a lot more complicated. And, you know, Chris mentioned the beginning that RBP plans may not be under all the surprise billing protections because of their potential always out of network status. And, and one of the things we've looked at from the very beginning was the legislative, the statute prohibition on using, you know, government backed rates like Medicare, which puts you in a bind if you're an RBP plan and you use, you know, a multiplier of Medicare. But, and it's something that both Chris and I have had numerous discussions with Congress and the agencies about, there was an important footnote in the second IFR, basically going to this point, and it's worth everybody taking a look at this footnote in the IFR. And that basically says, that if you use a, multi a multiplier of Medicare to determine the QPA for your in-network rate, you can continue to do that and the arbiter can and must consider that is the QPA amount. And to me, that footnote in and of itself is the agencies um, trying to understand and bring in RBP plans into that QPA when it comes to an out-of-network emergency uh, care uh, event. So Chris, do you have other thoughts on that? Because I know it's it's a complicated, you know, issue. Yeah, and, and Dorothy, this may segue into another question that you have, but uh, I'll say it this way, that there was a lot of questions about this prohibition of using uh, public payer rates, in particular Medicare. And in the part two IFR, the September 30th IFR, as we refer to it, the federal department specifically said, hey, payer or provider, you can't submit an offer to the CEDRA that is a percentage of Medicare, like 150% of Medicare. Your offer can't be 150% of Medicare. But what an arbiter is allowed to do when we're dealing with a value based on a percentage of Medicare is if that value, that percentage of Medicare value is the basis for the QPA, this median in-network rate, well then by definition, the CEDRA can take into account the percentage of Medicare because the CEDRA has to look to the QPA, the median network rate, as the primary factor. So again, you can't come with 150% of Medicare offer, but if the QPA is based on a percentage of Medicare, then that can be taken into account by the CEDRA. 
Yeah, and as you said, this is going to be very complicated, and I can just imagine for the first three to six months uh, how people are going to be reacting to this because it's 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 not an easy thing to come up with. So uh, I appreciate your thoughts on this. Well, I do know that the Self-Insurance Institute of America submitted comments to the agencies, and some of those comments and suggestions were written into the rules. Can you share with us you know, what some of those items were that were included? Yeah, let me jump in on this, Ryan, first. And, and this might help clarify the answer that I gave earlier regarding the QPA is the primary factor. In our comment letter, in SIA's comment letter, we made the argument to the federal departments that the qualifying payment amount, the median in-network rate, should indeed be the primary factor. And we said that for a number of reasons, which we don't necessarily need to go into detail with, but we did say the QPA is the primary factor and the CEDRA must assume that it is the final payment amount or represents the final payment amount. And the only way the CEDRA can pick a higher amount is if the provider can provide information, this additional criteria that we spoke about, that would lead the CEDRA to indicate that the QPA, that final payment amount, should be something higher. So we argued to the federal department that they should develop a rebuttal per presumption standard that the seizure must assume the QPA is the right amount and the provider must rebut that presumption with additional information, in this case, the additional criteria that we discussed. And that is exactly what the federal departments did. They developed a rebuttable presumption standard when it came to looking to the QPA as the primary factor, but then allowing the provider to uh, convince the CEDRA that they should be paid a higher amount based on the additional criteria, which again is still a pretty high bar based on this rebuttable presumption standard. And I'll say a couple more things on our comment letter too, because I feel like we we made a number of recommendations that the federal agencies took up. And Chris, I, I think our, our thing we're most proud of is that QPA and the rebuttable presumption. There's a couple of other factors on the arbitration that we also um, made an argument for, and I think one, I mean, one, we, we asked for clarification on RBP, you know, made good progress in that when it came to the footnote. We also, I think our, our recommendations when it came to conflicts of interest on the, on the arbiter side were taken into account. We can talk about that more, um, as well as kind of ways that you can dispute how an arbiter has come down in certain judgments. So I, I think overall, you know, the four or five main points in our original comment letter were certainly taken into consideration one way or another by the federal agencies. I think that's that's fabulous that you guys did that. Um, obviously, that's one of the important roles of organizations like SIA. To start the IDR process, a party must submit a notice to the other party, you know, and to the departments through the federal portal on the same day, and either party may initiate the process, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, there are specific time frames for each step. Can you walk us through this? And do you think the time allowances will be adequate for each step? Why or why not? And are these time frames realistic? I know this is kind of a loaded question, but if maybe if you walk us through this, it'll help us to understand a little bit better. Chris, why don't you go ahead and take the, the time frame? Yeah, and what's, what's interesting, Dorothy, to your question is an argument can be made that 30 days is not a long time. Um, but the manner in which the federal departments have structured what we call the surprise billing payment process is it is generally uh, a built on a 30-day time frame and actually a 30-business-day time frame. 
Now, there are some other time date uh, business days that I'll, I'll speak to within each of these 30 business day timeframes. But generally speaking, it's a 30 business day timeframe. And the first timeframe is what's referred to as the initial payment uh, amount process, where the first step in the process is the plan will receive a claim from the provider. And the plan has 30 business days to determine whether they want to make some sort of initial payment or deny a payment altogether. Once the plan makes that decision, they will inform the provider of the decision. And once the provider receives the decision from the plan, then the provider has 30 business days to determine whether the provider wants to start a negotiation process or a negotiation period with the plan, which is referred to as the open negotiation period. Now, the open negotiation period is itself a 30 business day period, but it is not triggered until the provider sends a notice to the plan and says, hey, let's negotiate what this excess payment amount should be from what the patient already paid them. This 30 business day period, the payer and provider can negotiate. The federal departments have nothing to do with this open negotiation period. It's just the provider and the payer having at it. The plan might say, I don't wanna negotiate. And they might sit back and wait. They might negotiate over the 30 day period. It's, it's up to both parties. But the most important point is this 30 business day period must be exhausted before either party can initiate the arbitration process. And the last thing I'll say is when it comes to the arbitration process, it itself is a 30 business day process. But the 30 business day process does not begin until the CEDRA is selected by the initiating party and the non-initiating party. And if they can't agree, the federal departments, the federal government will select that CEDRA. Once that CEDRA is selected, then there's a process within that. And I, I don't wanna keep talking too much, but it's another 30 business day process, which then, so at the end of the arbitration process, the arbiter will submit a written decision. Once that written decision is submitted, there are 30 calendar days where the final payment must be made by the plan to the provider. That's quite a complicated process, and I'm sure people are just going, uh, right? <laughs> I mean, this is going to be complicated. So, well, I also, I also want to simplify it because it sounds complicated, but it really, it, it's not as complicated as it needs to be. I mean, really, see, see this in in more or less thirty business day increments, right? I mean, you have you the the fact is that you know in the beginning, the provider is probably not going to wait a full thirty days to to start that open negotiation. So we can kind of put away that initial payment period. You have a thirty day you know, a 30-day period for open negotiation, more or less a 30-day period for arbitration. Um, and, and then you have 30 days after that to to pay. So I kind of, I still, while it's plus or minus a couple of days, I still view it in 30-day increments and people will kind of figure that out. Yeah, let's hope so. Well, there are a limited number of arbiters that can be certified. And in your recent webinar, you mentioned 50 to 75 uh, potentially to begin with. Do you think that the limited number of arbiters will slow down the process? 
I think it has the potential to. At the end of the day, right now, our potential arbiters can already seek certification with the federal agencies, and the federal agencies want them to do that so they're up and running by January 1. I think the first year of arbitration all across the board is going to be a bumpy road until it's it's straightened out a little bit for, for folks. And remember, just because it's an entity, there could be 50 specific personnel in that in that CEDRA, in that in that arbitration entity. So I think in the rule, the just based on what's going on in the states, the federal departments estimate between 50 and 75 potential certified arbiters. And remember, they have to meet a number of criteria, avoid conflicts of interest and some ownership. So there's there's pretty substantial rules about who can and, and can't qualify as an arbiter. And, and again, each of these entities may have 100 people working for them. And I'm pretty sure that arbiters will want to get through as many decisions as possible. So I, I think with that in mind, um, you know, it'll be a bumpy beginning. I think it will probably smooth itself out in the first six months um, to a year. I would, I would hope so. <laughs> Do you think that the majority of the claims are going to be settled in the original open negotiation period? It really is an excellent question. Um, the way that the part two rule is written, the September 30th 5R, as we continue to refer to it, is written, um, where the QPA is the primary factor and the, the fact that we've all made on this podcast and, and in other venues that the providers are not happy with the rule because they feel that they're not going to be paid the amount that they wish or hoped or that have been traditionally be getting paid, uh, that it is more likely than not that a provider will negotiate. Because if they go to arbitration, they might not get even the amount that they would otherwise get through a negotiation with the plan. So there is a strong argument that uh, the provider will not want to go to IDR uh, arbitration and instead negotiate. And the last thing I'll say too is, and, and maybe this steps on one of your questions later on, Dorothy, is the losing party in arbitration does have to pay the cost of arbitration. Now, the arbitration cost is somewhat low dollar, but needless to say, does a provider, if they feel that they're not going to get an amount they want, in arbitration, and if they think they're going to lose as a result of that, why go to arbitration? Why not just negotiate it out? Um, so that's my thoughts, Ryan. I don't know if you have a different opinion. Yeah, I'll, I'll say two things. I mean, one, I think the federal agencies have written these rules to avoid, uh, to give as many options in the open negotiation period as possible and kind of avoid arbitration. Do I think there's going to be more arbitration in the beginning uh, than than perhaps negotiated, you know, rates probably. Um, I also think that the entering into arbitration and kind of reaching a settlement and open negotiation will probably depend on the amount of, of the service. You know, so the question is, are you more likely to go to arbitration on a $10,000 bill or a $1,000 bill? And so part of that is just payment and, and, and negotiation and, and, and pure strategy by the plans and the providers. And that will play into that as well. Or, or a $200,000 hospital bill. Yeah, it's probably correct. Or a, or a $70,000 air ambulance. Bill, right, right, exactly. So it, it, it depends on where the savings are. Yeah. Can you tell us the difference between calendar days and business days in the rule? Business days and why we made the distinction early on of these 30 day periods and the fact that the uh, federal departments have indicated that these 30 day periods are defined by business days. 
And to your question, Dorothy, a business day is Monday through Friday and not federal holidays. So I've actually used an example of if um, a provider receives the initial payment uh, on October 1st, but then the provider chooses to wait 29 days to start the open negotiation period. And let's say that open negotiation period starts on October 29th. If you count Thanksgiving and Veterans Day, which are federal holidays, and you go the Mondays through Friday, that gets you to like a December 13th timeframe. So that's a long time between when the open negotiation period starts and when it ends. And, and I start on this example because the open negotiation period has to be exhausted before arbitration can even begin. So that's business days. Calendar days obviously is calendar days. And the reason why after the written decision by the seizure is submitted and the final payment is due, the federal department said calendar days is a shorter time period than business days and federal holidays. And as a result, we want the plan to pay the provider as soon as possible. And that is why the federal department's developed calendar days in that context, but yet developed business days in the other contexts. And I'll, I'll, I think that this is a very important distinction between self-insured and fully insured plans. And it has to do with end of year, Dorothy, because of stop loss and because of tails and, and payment. So potentially you could enter uh, the, you could enter a surprise billing process in October even or November, and you may not actually come to a finality on it until February um, of, of the next year. And I think that that's going to pose problems. And I think, and I say that because it will be important for plans to look at their, their language with um, like stop loss providers and kind of figure that out. Some, there's going to be details that need to be ironed out because of this new surprise billing rule. Yeah, for sure. What happens, I'm going to go back a little bit, uh, kind of to the beginning. What happens if the parties can't agree on a CEDRA? What happens in that situation? Sure. So after that open negotiation period, plus, so 30 business days, plus four days after that, then you can enter into arbitration. You, there's two scenarios here, Dorothy. One, both of the parties can agree on an arbiter. And that arbiter has to, has to be void of any conflicts of interest. If, that, if, if an arbiter cannot be picked in three days, then, um, then the, the arbiter will be picked by the federal departments and will basically be assigned to you through that, going back to the importance of the portal, through the portal. So basically, like if you, if you don't come to an agreement, a joint agreement on an arbiter, the federal agencies will do it for you within six days. So either way, you're going to end up with, a, with an arbiter, one that you either choose with the provider or one that's assigned to you. I'll mention one other thing that's important. You cannot use the same arbiter for a, um, within a 12-month a, a uh, calendar. So if you, used, if you used an arbiter uh, today, you will not be able to use that arbiter again on a case until next October. So that, that's an important distinction too. That prevents plans or providers from basically using a friendly provider over and over again. And I think an important part of giving some independence to this process. Well, thank you for that. Uh, the primary factor is the QPA or the median in network rate, which represents a reasonable market-based payment. Uh, since the arbiter must select the offer closest to the QPA, do you think the majority of the claims will be settled at the QPA amount? Why or why not? Yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting question. And um, 
I really think it's it's difficult to answer at this point until we have more experience with the IDR process, the arbitration process, and how it's going to play out. But just based on the rule, based on the part two rule, the September 30th IFR that I keep mentioning that we refer to it as, um, it seems to be clear that the QPA is the primary factor and the provider has a really high bar to rebut the presumption that the QPA is not the right payment amount. And you know, you, you use the words and I used them earlier. The federal department said this median in-network rate represents a reasonable market-driven value. And so the federal departments are of the opinion and Congress is of the opinion as well that the healthcare industry is an imperfect market. It is not like other markets where goods are bought and sold. But Congress and the federal departments are attempting to make the healthcare industry, the market, a more perfect market, even though it will remain imperfect, mind you. And so the federal department said, look, we now have a market-driven value that should be representative. And as a result, that is why the CEDRA should assume that it's the right amount. And the only way the CEDRA can go to an amount that's higher than the QPA is if the provider can successfully provide credible information rebutting the presumption that the QPA is right. Can you walk us through the baseball-style arbitration process? Because we all talk about that, but some people may not be sports fans and they may not understand what that what that means exactly. How are the winners and losers selected and who pays? And I know that, Chris, you mentioned this earlier, but can you just kind of explain this a little bit better for us? Yeah, and it's also related to, to what I just mentioned, but Baseball arbitration, in short, is the plan comes with an offer, the provider comes with an offer, and the CEDRA must pick either the plan's offer or the provider's offer. The CEDRA does not pick something in between. They pick either offer, and that is what baseball arbitration is. You pick the offer that is submitted by the parties. Now, what the federal departments did is said, look, CEDRA, you must look to the QPA as this primary factor, and you must pick the offer that is closest to it, which to Ryan and I means the plan might come with their offer that is exactly what the QPA is. And if that is what the offer is, i.e. it's the QPA, that based on the rule, unless the provider can rebut the presumption with the additional criteria, the CEDRA must pick the plan's offer, which here is the QPA. Now, let's say the plan comes with an offer that's lower, slightly lower than the QPA or slightly higher than the QPA, but let's say it's 10%, give or take. But let's say the provider comes with an offer that's 100% away from the QPA. Well, again, the part two rule, the September 35 FAR, tells the CEDRA that you must pick the offer that's closest to the QPA. In this case, it would be the plan's offer at 10% plus or minus. To determine the final payment amount, parties can continue to negotiate after the IDR process begins. Can you walk us through this? Yeah, so just because the, the arbitration process starts doesn't mean necessarily that the plan and the provider cannot continue to negotiate a final um a final payment amount. So let's say 
you know, that that final, like they go through the open negotiation period. They, they may be making progress, but they basically, they haven't, and they, they're going into arbitration. Remember that arbiter has 30 days to make a final decision. At some point during that period, one or the other party can say, hey, look, you know what, let's come to an agreement. You know, here it is. They agree to it. At that point, that basically can end the process. They, they can then notify the arbiter that, hey, we've made a decision. Um, they can arrange that, that payment amount, but then they're responsible for paying. They're still responsible at that point after they've chosen the arbiter to pay that arbiter. Um, and so at, in that point, they'll, they'll reach an agreement and they'll, uh, they'll basically both equally you know, divide the arbitration costs in half and then pay the arbiter still um, and then, and then go, go about issuing that, that final payment to the, the other party. Is there an appeal process if the parties, you know, just can't agree on a final rate? Well, there wouldn't be an appeals process because then the, if, if they can't, they, they don't have a final rate, the arbiter will end up choosing, choosing the rate for them. And then there's no appeals process once the arbiter chooses that final, that final payment amount. Yeah. And add to that, to add to that, Dorothy, um, the arbiter's decision cannot be challenged in court unless there's fraud or you know misrepresentation that can be proven. Um, but otherwise, the arbiter's decision, the CEDRA's decision is binding on both parties and final. And unless for extenuating circumstances like fraud or misrepresentation, you cannot challenge that therefore there is no additional appeals process past the arbitration process. Well, and, and that's a great point, Chris, because that final arbitration number is actually important for a number of reasons. One, Chris just pointed out. Two, when the arbiter um, decides on that final number, they basically have to issue to, to a federal to the federal portal why they made that decision and factors that are in that. So after a year or two, this the the federal reporting requirements will have a wealth of information. Um, the third, and I think a very important uh, item in the arbitration determination is that. That arbitration determination for that case does not have precedent in the future. So an arbiter um, on a similar case or a, a code two months from now can't go back into the files and look at another arbiter's decision on that. It's it's not precedent. It, it it's basically almost like blinders from one from one case to another. What if the provider um, upcodes or downcodes their charges? Yeah, and it's it's a good question that that we've received as well and. Let's go back to the additional criteria that we've been discussing. And let's also go back to the QPA and the CEDRA looking to the QPA as the primary factor. The part two rules of September 30th IFR specifically says that it is not the role of the CEDRA to determine whether the QPA, the median network rate was calculated correctly. It's not the CEDRA's job. What the CEDRA's job is, is to take into account the information that is provided to them, take into account the rules that the federal government has set forth for the CEDRA to follow to make a final determination amount. So let me pull in the additional factors here. Let's say uh, a provider, for example, says, hey, the QPA is not an appropriate amount here because the plan actually switched the code that I attached to the claim that I initially submitted to the plan and that code is not appropriate and therefore has depressed this value that I am owed and that's why it's way off. 
And the CDR is allowed to take into account that downcoding situation on the part of the plan. Same thing on the other side of it. If the provider somehow upcodes and the plan identifies that, the plan can submit information saying to the CDRA, hey, the provider upcoded, here's why, and here's why their offer is way wrong and why you should go to the QPA or the closest offer to the QPA, which is our offer. Now, I think I think this issue just got very important, especially upcoding, because j- just within the last couple of days, the Department of Justice uh, announced that they're going after Kaiser Permanente for upcoding Medicare charges. And to me, that story almost couldn't hit at a better time because it's happening and it's real. And they need to be aware of that because it's it's not an uncommon practice, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Can you walk us through the cooling off period? I think the cooling off period is is fairly simple. I mean, the cooling off period is 90 days after um, after kind of a, a, a surprise medical billing case or arbitration, if you will. And this is really put in to make sure either a plan or provider just doesn't keep going after the same other plan or provider constantly over charges. So if you've if you're a self-insured plan and you've you've gone through a surprise billing case with a provider, you cannot take that same provider into surprise billing arbitration or through the process again for another 90 days. But once that 90 day cooling off period, because it really is a cooling off period if you're frustrated a provider, once that 90 day period has ended though, you can kind of go back through that 90 days and clump claims in and then resubmit it to the to the basically surprise billing process once again. But really, again, the, the, the cooling off period is meant to do just that, is to kind of let both parties simmer down kind of look at it and, and come with a fresh start once that once that period has ended. Thank you. And Dorothy, two quick points on that is is one, the cooling off period was put in to uh, stop habitual use of the arbitration process by both the provider or the plan. So that was the intent of the cooling off period. And lastly, the 90 days here is a calendar day period as opposed to a business day period. And again, it was because the department said, Yes, we like the business day standard. That's why it's the standard for all of these other specified timeframes that we've discussed. When it comes to the 90-day cooling off period, similar to the final payment amount, is the federal department says that we need it to be a quicker process as opposed to the business day process. So it's a 90-day calendar day period as opposed to a business day. Thank you for that. What types of plan changes will health plans, particularly self-insured health plans, have to make? To me, it's, a, it's an excellent question. You know, uh, I'm hearing folks saying, well, should we just go to a, a no network uh, plan? C- can we uh, be, you know, uh, have, have better negotiating, negotiating position with a particular provider? Because we could say, hey, we're just going to keep you out of network because we know that the federal protections will apply here and the payments will be more closer to a reasonable market-based value, which is the median and network rate, and therefore we can keep you or, or, or not bring you into our network. But it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Like for your plans or your customers, your employers, your plan sponsors to uh, actually offer coverage to their employees, those employees might want the children's hospital that is down the street that mind you, that children's hospital might be charging higher rates than other providers in the area. 
if you're negotiating whether that children's hospital is in your network or not, you first might say to yourself, well, let's keep them out of network because we could get them at the median network rate. But then the other side of the coin is, well, the employees and the employer might not want to you know, play with us or contract with us as some sort of you know, TPA or RBP type arrangement because we're keeping that particular provider out of a network. So it's that debate, that analysis, that kind of strategic planning that is being undertaken right now that I'm not sure how it's going to play out. And I'll say some things on the plan administration side that I think are important. I mean, one, the whole basis of the No Surprises Act was to increase network availability, both on provider and insurers. And I think people trying to avoid making like to make plan changes to avoid certain protections is not going to bode well for them. Um, Two, from an administrative standpoint, I already talked about kind of some potential issues with stop loss and tails. Um, I think the, the third important part, especially for administration, is that now is the time for, for all the participants within a plan, the employer, the, the TPA, everybody involved, to have a discussion about how they're going to tackle this, right? Because it's it's largely going back to, you know, kind of an old college class I had on strategic negotiation. How do you want to, what is your strategy going into open your initial payment amount? What's your strategy with open negotiation? And what's your strategy with arbitration? Because you probably want to be consistent and you want to do something that at the end of the day, the plan sponsor is comfortable with. Every plan may have a different tact, but that's something that they want to start looking at now because January 1 is, is just around the corner for folks. Yeah, for sure. Well, now that we have part two, were most of your questions answered? And are there more questions that you have on the RDR process? And if so, what additional questions do you guys have? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good question within a question. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I mean, just pers personal uh, perspective here. Um, I generally don't have many more questions to ask the federal department because I do think the federal departments did the right thing. Now, maybe I'm biased because Sia suggested this, which is making the qualifying payment the primary factor, developing a rebuttable presumption standard, uh, trying to make the healthcare market a more perfect market uh, and, and move it to something where, you know, a regular market where goods are bought and sold. Um, and, and so I think they've done a good job in that case. The, the transparency rules not to expand our conversation, I think is also intended to try to make the healthcare market a more perfect market, even though it will remain imperfect. Um, I, I guess the last thing that I'll say about questions is, you know, you asked an earlier, Dorothy, about CEDRAs. And Ryan and I have discussed this, like many of the requirements to qualify as a CEDRA, to be certified, um, are pretty onerous. I mean, they're pretty detailed. And how many entities are really going to go through that process? And if the arbitration process itself has a low cost dollar amount associated with it, are there going to be a lot of entities that are going to want to jump into this? And has the departments really thought through that? Um, and how is experience going to change um, how the departments might feel about the certification process for CEDRAs? I'd say that would be the only open issue that I think is there in my personal perspective. So Ryan, your thoughts? Yeah, here are a couple of things I'm looking at. And I think Chris hit the nail on the head because we have three pillars of price transparency that aren't um, that aren't interacting with each other now, but they're going to start next year. And that's the hospital price transparency rule, the insured transparency rule, the transparency and coverage rule, and the No Surprises Act. 
And they're going to interact in different ways and they're going to strengthen each other and they can weaken each other and create a lot of administrative burden. And I think over the next six months, 12 months, two years, we're going to have more questions and needed clarifications that are going to pop up. So I don't think I, I will applaud the federal agencies because I think they've done a tremendous job with a complex issue in a very uh, fast paced way up to January 1. I think once implementation hits is where we're going to see a lot of those questions. And one, I see future a future rule even by the end of the year that has like technical clarifications to it. Um, I can see another, some more FAQs or guidance coming out a year or two from now from the federal agencies. And I know for a fact that hospitals are already looking for Congress to maybe even look for legislative changes that, that they 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 want. And so, you know, it's something that Chris and I have even already talked about is potential further both regulatory and legislative changes to this, depending on how implementation goes. So this is a, the start of, a, of a, a long road on a number of different transparency issues. Hopefully, when we get down through that road, it's going to be better off, I think, more most importantly for, you know, our healthcare system and also more just the most important for patients and their families. Well, thank you very much for that. And we're out of time. And I'm sure that, you, you know, we could all go on for another hour at least on this. But I want to thank you so much for being here today. If someone wants to, you know, talk to you guys, wants to reach out for more information from you guys or from the Self-Insurance Institute of America, how can they reach you and how can they reach the association? Sure. Probably the best way to do that is through our website, which is SIA.org. Um, you know, the, you can contact both Chris and I through there. Um, we're always happy to talk over phone or email. Okay, great. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Fun conversation. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned for next week for our next episode. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.